Section 16 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Walker. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1C, Section 16, Chapter 29, Part 3. The Emperor made great preparations on the side of Navarre, and though that frontier was well guarded by nature, it seemed now exposed to danger from the powerful invasion which threatened it. Charles besieged Fontarabia, which a few years before had fallen into Francis's hands, and when he had drawn thither Lautrec, the French general, he of a sudden raised the siege and sat down before Bayonne. Lautrec, aware of that stratagem, made a sudden march and threw himself into Bayonne, which he defended with such vigour and courage that the Spaniards were constrained to raise the siege. The emperor would have been totally unfortunate on this side had he not turned back upon Fontarabia, and, contrary to the advice of all his generals, sitting down in the winter season before that city, well fortified and strongly garrisoned. The cowardice or misconduct of the governor saved him from the shame of a new disappointment. The place was surrendered in a few days, and the emperor, having finished this enterprise, put his troops into winter quarters. So obstinate was Francis in prosecuting his Italian expedition that, notwithstanding these numerous invasions with which his kingdom was menaced on every side, he had determined to lead in person a powerful army to the conquest of Milan. The intelligence of Bourbon's conspiracy and escape stopped him at Lyon, and fearing some insurrection in the kingdom from the intrigues of a man so powerful and so much beloved, he thought it prudent to remain in France and to send forward his army under the command of Admiral Bonnivet. The Duchy of Milan had been purposely left in a condition somewhat defenceless, with a view of alluring Francis to attack it, and thereby facilitating the enterprises of Bourbon. And no sooner had Bonnivet passed the Tessin than the army of the League and even Prosper Colonna, who commanded it, a prudent general, were in the utmost confusion. It is agreed that if Bonnivet had immediately advanced to Milan, that great city, on which the whole duchy depends, would have opened its gates without resistance. But as he wasted his time in frivolous enterprises, Colonna had opportunity to reinforce the garrison and to put the place in a posture of defence. Bonnivet was now obliged to attempt reducing the city by blockade and famine, and he took possession of all the posts which commanded the passages to it. But the army of the League, meanwhile, was not inactive, and they so straitened and harassed the quarters of the French that it seemed more likely the latter should themselves perish by famine than reduce the city to that extremity. Sickness and fatigue and want had wasted them to such a degree that they were ready to raise the blockade, and their only hopes consisted in a great body of Swiss which was levied for the service of the French king, and whose arrival was every day expected. 
But these mountaineers no sooner came within sight of the French camp than they stopped, from a sudden caprice and resentment; and instead of joining Bonnivet, they sent orders to a great body of their countrymen, who then served under him, immediately to begin their march, and to return home in their company. After this desertion of the Swiss, Bonnivet had no other choice but that of making his retreat as fast as possible into France. The French being thus expelled, Italy, the Pope, the Venetians, the Florentines were satisfied with the advantage obtained over them, and were resolved to prosecute their victory no further. All these powers, especially Clement, had entertained a violent jealousy of the emperor's ambition, and their suspicions were extremely augmented when they saw him refuse the investiture of Milan, a fief of the empire, to Francis Sforza, whose title he had acknowledged, and whose defence he had embraced. They all concluded that he intended to put himself in possession of that important duchy, and reduce Italy to subjection. Clement, in particular, actuated by this jealousy, proceeded so far in opposition to the emperor, that he sent orders to his nuncio at London to mediate a reconciliation between France and England. But affairs were not yet fully ripe for this change. Wolsey, disgusted with the emperor, but still more actuated by vainglory, was determined that he himself should have the renown of bringing about that great alteration, and he engaged the king to reject the pope's mediation. A new treaty was even concluded between Henry and Charles for the invasion of France. Charles stipulated to supply the Duke of Bourbon with a powerful army in order to conquer Provence and Dauphiny. Henry agreed to pay him a hundred thousand crowns for the first month, after which he might either choose to continue the same monthly payments or invade Picardy with a powerful army. Bourbon was to possess these provinces with the title of king, but to hold them in fee of Henry as king of France. The duchy of Burgundy was to be given to Charles, the rest of the kingdom to Henry. This chimerical partition immediately failed of execution in the article which was most easily performed. Bourbon refused to acknowledge Henry as king of France. His enterprise, however, against Provence still took place. A numerous army of imperialists invaded that country under his command and that of the Marquis of Pescara. They laid siege to Marseilles, which, being weakly garrisoned, they expected to reduce in a little time. But the citizens defended themselves with such valour and obstinacy that Bourbon and Pescara, who heard of the French king's approach with a numerous army, found themselves under the necessity of raising the siege, and they led their forces, weakened, baffled, and disheartened, into Italy. Francis might now have enjoyed in safety the glory of repulsing all his enemies, in every attempt which they had hitherto made for invading his kingdom. But as he received intelligence that the King of England, discouraged by his former fruitless enterprises, and disgusted with the Emperor, was making no preparations for any attempt on Picardy, his ancient ardour seized him for the conquest of Milan. And notwithstanding the advanced season, he was immediately determined, contrary to the advice of his wisest counsellors, to lead his army into Italy. He passed the Alps at Mount Cenis, and no sooner appeared in Piedmont 
than he threw the whole Milanese into consternation. The forces of the emperor and Sforza retired to Lodi, and had Francis been so fortunate as to pursue them, they had abandoned that place and had been totally dispersed. But his ill fate led him to besiege Pavia, a town of considerable strength, well garrisoned and defended by Leva, one of the bravest officers in the Spanish service. Every attempt which the French king made to gain this important place proved fruitless. He battered the walls and made breaches, but by the vigilance of Leva, new entrenchments were instantly thrown up behind the breaches. He attempted to divert the course of the Tessin, which ran by one side of the city and defended it, but an inundation of the river destroyed in one night all the mounds which the soldiers during a long time and with infinite labour had been erecting. Fatigue and the bad season, for it was the depth of winter, had wasted the French army. The imperial generals, meanwhile, were not inactive. Pescara and Lanoy, viceroy of Naples, assembled forces from all quarters. Bourbon, having pawned his jewels, went into Germany, and with the money, aided by his personal interest, levied a body of twelve thousand Lansquenets with which he joined the imperialists. This whole army advanced to raise the siege of Pavia, and the danger to the French became every day more imminent. The state of Europe was such during that age that, partly from the want of commerce and industry everywhere, except in Italy and the Low Countries, partly from the extensive privileges still possessed by the people in all the great monarchies and their frugal maxims in granting money, the revenues of the princes were extremely narrow, and even the small armies which they kept on foot could not be regularly paid by them. The imperial forces, commanded by Bourbon, Pescara and Lanoy, exceeded not twenty thousand men. They were the only body of troops maintained by the emperor, for he had not been able to levy any army for the invasion of France, either on the side of Spain or Flanders. Yet so poor was that mighty monarch that he could transmit no money for the payment of this army, and it was chiefly the hopes of sharing the plunder of the French camp which had made them advance and kept them to their standards. Had Francis raised the siege before their approach and retired to Milan, they must immediately have disbanded, and he had obtained a complete victory without danger or bloodshed. But it was the character of this monarch to become obstinate in proportion to the difficulties which he encountered, and having once said that he would take Pavia or perish before it, he was resolved rather to endure the utmost extremities than depart from this resolution. The imperial generals, after cannonading the French camp for several days, at last made a general assault, and broke into the entrenchments. Leva sallied from the town, and increased the confusion among the besiegers. The Swiss infantry, contrary to their usual practice, behaved in a dastardly manner, and deserted their post. Francis's forces were put to rout, and he himself, surrounded by his enemies, after fighting with heroic valour and killing seven men with his own hand, was at last obliged to surrender himself prisoner. Almost the whole army, full of nobility and brave officers, either perished by the sword or were drowned in the river. The few who escaped with their lives fell into the hands of the enemy. The emperor received this news by Penalosa, 
who passed through France by means of a safe conduct granted him by the captive king. The moderation which he displayed on this occasion, had it been sincere, would have done him honour. Instead of rejoicing, he expressed sympathy with Francis's ill fortune, and discovered his sense of those calamities to which the greatest monarchs are exposed. He refused the city of Madrid permission to make any public expressions of triumph, and said that he reserved all his exultation till he should be able to obtain some victory over the infidels. He sent orders to his frontier garrisons to commit no hostilities upon France. He spoke of concluding immediately a peace on reasonable terms. But all this seeming moderation was only hypocrisy, so much the more dangerous as it was profound. And he was wholly occupied in forming schemes how, from this great incident, he might draw the utmost advantage, and gratify that exorbitant ambition by which, in all his actions, he was ever governed. The same Penalosa, in passing through France, carried also a letter from Francis to his mother, whom he had left regent, and who then resided at Lyon. It contained only these few words, Madam, all is lost except our honour. The princess was struck with the greatness of the calamity. She saw the kingdom without a sovereign, without an army, without generals, without money, surrounded on every side by implacable and victorious enemies, and her chief resource in her present distresses were the hopes which she entertained of peace, and even of assistance from the King of England. Had the King entered into the war against France from any concerted political views, it is evident that the victory of Pavia and the captivity of Francis were the most fortunate incidents that could have befallen him, and the only ones that could render his schemes effectual. While the war was carried on in the former feeble manner, without any decisive advantage, he might have been able to possess himself of some frontier town, or perhaps of a small territory of which he could not have kept possession without expending much more than its value. By some signal calamity alone, which annihilated the power of France, could he hope to acquire the dominion of considerable provinces, or dismember that great monarchy, so affectionate to its own government and its own sovereigns. But as it is probable that Henry had never before carried his reflections so far, he was startled at this important event, and became sensible of his own danger, as well as that of all Europe, from the loss of a proper counterpoise to the power of Charles. Instead of taking advantage, therefore, of the distressed condition of Francis, he was determined to lend him assistance in his present calamities and as the glory of generosity in raising a fallen enemy concurred with his political interests, he hesitated the less in embracing these new measures. Some disgusts also had previously taken place between Charles and Henry, and still more between Charles and Wolsey, and that powerful minister waited only for a favourable opportunity of revenging the disappointments which he had met with. The behaviour of Charles, immediately after the victory of Pavia, gave him occasion to revive the king's jealousy and suspicions. The emperor so ill-supported the appearance of moderation which he at first assumed, that he had already changed his usual style to Henry, 
and instead of writing to him with his own hand and subscribing himself your affectionate son and cousin he dictated his letters to a secretary and simply subscribed himself charles wolsey also perceived a diminution in the caresses and professions with which the emperor's letters to him were formerly loaded and this last imprudence proceeding from the intoxication of success was probably more dangerous to charles's interests than the other henry though immediately determined to embrace new measures was careful to save appearances in the change and he caused rejoicings to be everywhere made on account of the victory of pavia and the captivity of francis he publicly dismissed a french envoy who he had formerly allowed notwithstanding the war to reside at london but upon the regent of france's submissive applications to him he again opened a correspondence with her and besides assuring her of his friendship and protection he exalted a promise that she never would consent to the dismembering of any province from the monarchy for her son's ransom with the emperor however he put on the appearance of vigour and enterprise and in order to have a pretence for breaking with him he dispatched tonstall bishop of london to madrid with proposals for a powerful invasion of france he required that charles should immediately enter guienne at the head of a great army in order to put him in possession of that province and he demanded the payments of large sums of money which that prince had borrowed from him in his last visit at london he knew that the emperor was in no condition of fulfilling either of these demands and that he had as little inclination to make him master of such considerable territories upon the frontiers of spain tonstall likewise after his arrival at madrid informed his master that charles on his part urged several complaints against england and in particular was displeased with henry because last year he had neither continued his monthly payments to bourbon nor invaded picardy according to his stipulations tonstall added that instead of expressing an intention to espouse mary when she should be of age the emperor had hearkened to proposals for marrying his niece isabella princess of portugal and that he had entered into a separate treaty with francis and seemed determined to reap alone all the advantages of the success with which fortune had crowned his arms the king influenced by all these motives concluded at moore his alliance with the regent of france and engaged to procure her son his liberty on reasonable conditions the regent also in another treaty acknowledged the kingdom henry's debtor for one million eight hundred thousand crowns to be discharged in half yearly payments of fifty thousand crowns after which henry was to receive during life a yearly pension of a hundred thousand a large present of a hundred thousand crowns was also made to wolsey for his good offices but covered under the pretence of arrears due on the pension granted him for relinquishing the administration of tournay meanwhile henry foreseeing that this treaty with france might involve him in a war with the emperor was also determined to fill his treasury by impositions upon his own subjects and as the parliament had discovered some reluctance in complying with his demands he followed as is believed the counsel of wolsey and resolved to make use of his prerogative alone for that purpose he issued commissions to all the counties of england for levying four shillings in the pound upon the clergy three shillings and fourpence upon the laity and so uncontrollable did he deem his authority 
that he took no care to cover, as formerly, this arbitrary exaction, even under the slender pretence of a loan. But he soon found that he had presumed too far on the passive submission of his subjects. The people, displeased with an exaction beyond what was usually levied in those days, and further disgusted with the illegal method of imposing it, broke out in murmurs, complaints, opposition to the commissioners, and their refractory disposition threatened a general insurrection. Henry had the prudence to stop short in that dangerous path into which he had entered. He sent letters to all the counties, declaring that he meant no force by this last imposition, and that he would take nothing from his subjects but by way of benevolence. He flattered himself that his condescension in employing that disguise would satisfy the people, and that no one would dare to render himself obnoxious to royal authority by refusing any payment required of him in this manner. But the spirit of opposition, once roused, could not so easily be quieted at pleasure. A lawyer in the city objecting the statute of Richard III, by which benevolences were forever abolished, it was replied by the court that Richard being a usurper, and his parliament a factious assembly, his statutes could not bind a lawful and absolute monarch, who held his crown by hereditary right, and needed not to court the favour of a licentious populace. The judges even went so far as to affirm positively that the king might exact by commission any sum he pleased, and the privy council gave a ready assent to this decree, which annihilated the most valuable privilege of the people, and rendered all their other privileges precarious. Armed with such formidable authority of royal prerogative and a pretense of law, Wolsey sent for the mayor of London, and desired to know what he was willing to give for the supply of his majesty's necessities. The mayor seemed desirous, before he should declare himself, to consult the common council. But the cardinal required that he and all the aldermen should separately confer with himself upon the benevolence and he eluded by that means the danger of a formed opposition. Matters, however, went not so smoothly in the country. An insurrection was begun in some places, but as the people were not headed by any considerable person, it was easy for the Duke of Suffolk and the Earl of Surrey, now Duke of Norfolk, by employing persuasion and authority, to induce the ringleaders to lay down their arms and surrender themselves prisoners. The king, finding it dangerous to punish criminals engaged in so popular a cause, was determined, notwithstanding his violent imperious temper, to grant them a general pardon, and he prudently imputed their guilt not to their want of loyalty or affection, but to their poverty. The offenders were carried before the Star Chamber, where, after a severe charge brought against them by the king's council, the cardinal said, that notwithstanding their grievous offence, the king, in consideration of their necessities, had granted them his gracious pardon, upon condition that they would find sureties for their future good behaviour. But they, replying that they had no sureties, the cardinal first, and after him the Duke of Norfolk, said that they would be bound for them, upon which they were dismissed. These arbitrary impositions being imputed, though on what grounds is unknown to the counsels of the cardinal, increased the general odium under which he laboured. 
and the clemency of the pardon being ascribed to the king was considered as an atonement on his part for the illegality of the measure but wolsey supported both by royal and papal authority proceeded without scruple to violate all ecclesiastical privileges which during that age were much more sacred than civil and having once prevailed in that unusual attempt of suppressing some monasteries he kept all the rest in awe and exercised over them an arbitrary jurisdiction by his commission as legate he was empowered to visit them and reform them and chastise their irregularities and he employed his usual agent allen in the exercise of this authority the religious houses were obliged to compound for their guilt real or pretended by paying large sums to the cardinal or his deputy and this oppression was carried so far that it reached at last the king's ears which were not commonly open to complaints against his favourite wolsey had built a splendid palace at the hampton court which he probably intended as well as that of york place in westminster for his own residence but fearing the increase of envy on account of this magnificence and desirous to appease the king he made him a present of the building and told him that from the first he had erected it for his use end of section 16 chapter 29 part 3 recording by michelle walker